Today's sponsor is FreshBooks, which makes cloud accounting software that's ridiculously easy to use. FreshBooks has completely transformed how 5 million small business owners deal with their day-to-day paperwork. They do everything from invoices to expenses to time tracking. You can get a 30-day free trial and start saving time and money at freshbooks.com slash Peter. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by Digital Media. It's a real company with a funny name. I'm here with Kurt Anderson, the host of Studio 360 and the man who's done many other amazing things in his life, including branding Donald Trump back in the 80s. We didn't think of it as branding at the time. Look what you wrote. 1988, but yes. You and Graydon Carter ran Spy Magazine, founded Spy Magazine. Yep. I know you've told the story before, but I'm going to ask you again. Who decided and why did you decide to name Donald Trump a short-fingered Bulgarian? Well, because he is. But uh, Trump was actually in our very first issue, the very first issue of Spy, October 1986, the cover story was Jerks, the 10 Most Embarrassing New Yorkers. You nailed it. And there he was, one of them, before he was even well-known in New York, uh, actually. Anyway, we tried out, we called him a Queens-born casino operator, we called him, we had all kinds of little... This was the spy style, right? Everyone got a... Not everyone, but the regular people got an epithet attached to them. Uh, Henry Kissinger, for instance, was socialite war criminal Henry Kissinger. (laughs) Um, which was always just, it was fun to, see, you laugh. Yeah, and it was good. fun to repeat it every time uh, he came up in the magazine. Anyway, we tried out various ones on uh, Trump, and none of them took, really, until, I guess, 1988, when we, call, we called him a short-fingered Bulgarian. Now, short-fingered came from the fact that my co-editor had profiled Trump a couple of years before we started Spy, and, and remarked at the time on what short fingers this guy had, <laughs> this six-foot-two guy had. And uh, so... I think we were just amused by the idea of calling him a short-fingered Bulgarian. And do you remember his response? I'm sure you must remember his uh, response. I, I don't, he didn't respond immediately to that, but he was he famously reads everything and for a while would, would yeah. send would send clippings with his silver marker. Uh, gold critiquing. Sharpie, I gold think. Gold Sharpie. But yes. No, he both, I think, you know, as we've seen 30 years since, uh, he was angry in some way that we were, you know, yanking his chain in various ways. And pleased for the attention. I mean, and back in 1987, 1988, and 89, he was even thirstier for attention because he didn't get as much. So until we – then we started later in the 80s and early 90s, started doing long-form journalism about his uh, life and finances and various shenanigans that really did make him angry, and he threatened, quote-unquote, massive litigation against us. But but you said um, you started spying, what, 86? Uh Uh-huh. And at the time, Trump wasn't even that well-known in New York. And for a long time, I mean, Spy was really a New York magazine in many ways. It was not, I could buy it in Minneapolis where I started reading yeah. it. But, but, but it was, only it was, in Minneapolis, really. New was, York and Minneapolis. That was, pretty, that was pretty much it. But he was, he was a regional character he was. for a long time. He was. No, and Spy, at the beginning, we called ourselves the New York Monthly. And until he published The Art of the Deal in, I think, a year after we started in 1987, he was, yeah, he was just one of these New York characters who who made himself, who got a lot of attention because he called up the tabloid papers every day and uh, got column inches about himself. But no, he was, he was, he was small. So you've been watching his career, watching, watching his evolution for or lack of evolution life, for your yes. entire adult life. <laughs> yes. In some cases, you got paid for it. What have you seen in, in the way he has changed or not changed going back to the late 80s? Uh, I would say, I mean, the way he has changed is... Although back then, back even in 87 and 88 when we were doing Spy for the first time, he was flirting with the idea of running for president. I'd be a better president. I'd understand this nuclear proliferation thing. So 
So that was there, but he wasn't a political figure. He didn't say the horrible, hateful things that he started saying, you know, uh, in the last five years about, you know, the president not being born in the United States and things like that. He hadn't gone there yet. Uh, so, but apart from that, apart from deciding he was going to be king of, you know, you know, whatever he's the king of, the, the populist hard right, he was the same. He was completely the it's same. It's the same character. A hundred percent, hundred percent, except for this, you know, the part of He's his applied point. it to politics. Yeah, he's applied it to this particular form of politics. Yeah. And, and this is the question. I, I talked to a lot of people about Trump on, on this show, it turns out, because it, it's an interesting <laughs> topic. And I, I still don't really have an answer, but you would, you might have one. Is he in on the joke? Sometimes I feel like it's game, it's wrestling, it's circus. When he did the thing in front of the, the prior to the Sunday debate where he brought up Paula Jones and the other women, I thought, this is entertainment for him and he's treating it as such. And the fact that we're all offended might please him, but he, it's to him, it's, just, it's stagecraft. I but was, then I think, no, he's maybe I think not aware. Ye yes and no is the answer. And, and, you know, if you look at, I mean, wrestling, WWE is, if not the key, a large key to the Donald Trump phenomenon as we're experiencing today, which is, what they started doing in the 80s more than they'd ever done before when, uh, when, when he got involved in world wrestling is the, this blurring of the lines between the characters they're playing and I'm pretending to be angry at right. you, Hulk Hogan, and bringing that outside the ring and making it kind of real and, and getting blurring it for everybody, I think, about what was real and what but was But everyone fake. in wrestling and a lot of those guys are actually pretty smart, they're all in on the joke. They get that they're acting. It's it's part of yeah, the thing. Yeah, although, of course, you know, last year, uh, in the last year, Hulk Hogan is confused Hulk, about... Hulk Hogan it. seemed to have slipped the bounds a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So I think he... that per, Maybe that's changed, but I, I think I have always thought he had some mental disorders going on. And and for instance, the most one of the most basic, and you can call it narcissism, you can call it whatever you want, but this this hunger, this need like nothing I've ever seen in anyone for attention. That, uh, okay, you know, we all like attention. And Here a lot are, of people in show business. You're doing a podcast. I do a radio. Listen to me. Like, yeah, exactly. But not in the, in the hungry, I need it like air and water that he right. needs it, I think. So, so I think that leads to confusion probably in his mind about what's entertainment and what's real. And at this point, I think, I don't think it's all a joke. I don't think it's all a show. I think he now believes himself to be the leader of some anti-elite, right. uh, you know, new party. And you think when he goes back home to Trump Tower, he still believes that? It, it, it's, it's one thing to him now. Because it seems like he doesn't believe what he says at any given time. Well, he believes what he feels. And of course, as... Stephen Colbert has taught us for a dozen years the the difference between believing and feeling has become elided to the point of it's all truthiness uh, in America. You know, was he really angry at Hillary Clinton in the first debate? Yeah, I think he was really angry. So does that feel like belief? I think I don't think he believes in anything. Like when he says You're, you, you'd be in jail, and then people say, "Well, that was a, clearly a joke." And I think a it is a joke. To I mean, it's a bad joke. But I think he doesn't believe it. That he, he, the fact that people respond to it, he, that he believes. Well, but you have a you have a more hopeful view, I guess, of his. <laughs> My possible, cynical postmodernism is now hopeful. Exactly, of a possible presidency where no, 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 I'm not going to really put her in jail now that I'm president, or send the Justice Department out for her, or get a special prosecutor, or push the button to nuke North Korea. Mm, I'm not so sure. One last Trump thing. I was watching with my wife uh, 
I want to call it a supercut. I think you would just call it an assembly of clips. It was him and Billy, Billy Bush. Um, I can't remember if it was Colbert or Samantha. Someone had put it together. We watched it. It was, it was him and Billy Bush over the years. And my wife watched it and said, oh, he used to look like he was getting it or he had a sense of humor or he had lightness. And it doesn't, he doesn't look the way he looks now. He didn't have that sort of heavy anger. That part's new, right? New-ish. I've noted the same thing for some years, that he, he never seems happy. Yeah, I think it's true. I think that is new. I think back in the day, 25 years ago, you could see him actually enjoying himself, enjoying life, having glee. I think he's become, I mean, he, you know, he, he's, the, he's the disturbed, inconsolable freak that he is. And, and I think finally he, the, the unhappiness shows. And I think it really shows in this election, which is so interesting because my view of the presidency and who wins is always like, oh, the person who comes across as happier, no matter how marginally happier, usually wins. Richard Nixon, exception. Otherwise, that's the way it works. I'd like to get a beer with George W. Bush. Yeah, all of that. And, and he, he, I mean, he comes across as angry happy, I guess, when he's making fun of, right. you know, little Marco and stuff like that. But, uh, no, but his convention speech was very angry, very yeah, dire. No, exactly. I mean, and he, he can't fake contrition. He can't fake hopefulness. He can't fake, other than saying America's great and we're going to be winning, that's the end of that line. Uh, he, he's, 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 he's a sad fella. Been an incisive media observer, incisive maker of media for 30 years in, in and around journalism. There's a lot of soul searching about what happens after Trump. What does what does the journalism establishment do? Someone asked me that this morning. I said, I don't know. I guess they keep doing the same thing. I don't know they're equipped to do anything else beyond what they've done, which is put people who are interesting and popular on TV and then sort of leave it to other people outside of TV to critique them. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? Well, it depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about the news media coverage of political candidates and presidential candidates – that's a very specific question about what they do. I mean, th- clearly, the news media wasn't were not prepared to cover a, a cartoon character running for president. And I mean, he, I mean, in a way, you can't blame them. In a way, you can blame them for a lot, especially television. I think, which, which, you know, the television channels, the news channels, especially, uh, became uh, addicted to the ratings. He was right. His cynicism about hey, they like me because I bring high ratings is exactly right. And I don't think any of the people running the news channels ever said to the people on the air anything like, I don't care how hard you go after him. I don't care if he never gonna, is going to come on our show again. Just do what you got to do because that's what we do as journalists. I don't think that was ever said. <laughs> you know. So, so I think that there's something to figure out in terms of the news media, how to cover the next Trump. And is there a but, next Trump? I know Jacob Weisberg thinks a lot of, a lot of folks have talked. There's going to be – someone is going to do a Trump. Someone's going to figure out how to do Trump, but just as racist, but but less blundery. Maybe. But I, don't, I don't know if there is a character like him. I, I, well, there was – you know, I mean, and again, what we all say now is like, well, who could ever figure this? So anything can happen. And I get that. You know, so if Trump is the beta version of some more polished, you know, monster fascist person – I find it hard to know what that that ready for prime time winner winning version is. Yeah, and it could still win. There's still time. Recording this on a Tuesday, <laughs> you'll hear this on a Thursday. Yeah. There's one more debate to go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe we'll find a new Ken Bone character to amuse us for a couple yeah. of days. Let, let's not find uh, a new Ken Bone character. Yeah, I don't feel great about that. No, 
It's a fakey pretend, oh, it's just so depressing and gross and ugly. Let's look at this guy. No. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan. Well, let's find more positive and, and uplifting yes, things to talk about exactly. in one minute when we're done talking about our sponsors, who are awesome and uplifting. We'll be sure. right back. Today's show is brought to you by FreshBooks, the super simple cloud accounting software that's helping more than 5 million small businesses conquer their admin and paperwork in less time with way less stress. It only takes 30 seconds to create and send a polished, professional-looking invoice. And customers who accept online payments with FreshBooks get paid an average of three days faster. FreshBooks can even tell you if your client has looked at the invoice you sent them, so that's helpful. They can track your expenses, cash flow, and the time you're spending on each project. FreshBooks is offering a free month to all Recode Media listeners right now. To claim your offer, go to freshbooks.com slash Peter, enter Recode Media in the part where they ask you where you've heard about us. You heard about them from Recode Media. That's freshbooks.com slash Peter to start your 30-day free trial. Today's show is also brought to you by Videoblocks. They're a stock media company that everyone can afford, even you. With a Videoblocks subscription, you get unlimited daily downloads from a library of 115,000 HD video clips, After Effects templates, motion backgrounds, and cinemagraphs. I do not know what a cinemagraph is, but I bet it's awesome. On average, subscribers pay less than a dollar per download. So the same stuff you find on more expensive sites. It's just way cheaper. Even better, when you subscribe, you get everything 100% royalty-free. That means you cancel your subscription, you hang on to the stuff. If you're working on a personal project, commercial project, you pay zero royalties, you keep what you download forever. Videoblocks is offering my listeners a one-year subscription for $99. That's 50 bucks off the usual price tag for my listeners only. Get your yearly subscription today for only $99 at videoblocks.com slash recode. That's videoblocks.com slash recode for this exclusive offer. I'm back here with Kurt Anderson, host of Studio 360, professional Donald Trump observer. But before <laughs> you got into that business, you did many other cool things. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to, to Spy. It's, it's my pro bono business today. It's pretty good. Um, you started Spy in 86. Correct. And whenever I read a profile, it says, you and Graydon Carter co-founded Spy in 86. And no one ever explains how you co-found a magazine in the 80s when you were in your early 20s? Uh, I was 31. Okay. Sorry. So I got yeah. a timeline wrong. How, um, how, do you, how do you put together a magazine in 1986? Um well, it was being done. I mean, there there was no there was no website to internet startups to do. Right, but but also magazines were a thing. They well, were magazines they, they, were definitely a thing, right. and, and and nobody felt that they were on their last legs. Right, so it was not a it. small undertaking to put to, to assemble a magazine. But but you know, and uh, we were. I mean, Graydon had 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 a little magazine in Canada, uh, so he he knew a little bit more, and and uh, we both we met at Time Magazine, and and. Uh, you know, it was, you know, you raise some money, you raise a million bucks and uh, start printing magazines. And what, what, what did you think you were going to build when you started it? Uh, Lord knows. I mean, we thought, we, we thought it was going to be a magazine, a funny, I mean, what it was. It's, uh, you know, a journalistically based funny magazine that would print, that would do the things that other magazines weren't doing. That would print the stories that our friends were reporting and told us about at the bar but never published. That would very deliberately not do what other, you know, oh, other magazines do reviews. We will do, we won't do those. We'll do reviews of reviews. Right. Or, uh, oh, other magazines are doing service journalism about like how to know what tie to buy. We, we won't do any of that. So it was really almost as a lark to let's do what nobody else is doing and let's make a magazine that we would love as much as we loved magazines when we were younger. And it was very knowing and very insider. Yeah. And again, like we talked about, very New York. Yeah, I remember, yeah. again, I'm reading it in the late 80s. Yeah, and, as a and, child, and, I guess. Yeah, in, in Minneapolis, at a, uh, in high school, in college. Yeah. And 
some of the characters I would understand. I, I know who that is. A lot of them totally no, many, over my Many head. people tell me, oh, I, I learned who Donald Trump and Michael Ovitz and a lot, half a dozen other people were from Spy. And so, yeah, it was, it was, it was insidery, but you were all welcome. Right. And then famously sort of financially not successful were ups and downs and, and, and went through multiple ownership. And you guys had, you guys got out of that run fairly early. Fairly on, right? early. I mean, it was, it was very successful financially right away because this, we were lucky enough to have started it in a, in a time of, of economic prosperity and things were great. And, and we were breaking even, you know, three years later, which is after starting it, which is pretty amazing. And then, you know, we were kind of the canary in the mine of a 1991, 1990-91 recession. And this little weird little magazine all alone, suddenly we went from making money to not at all making money very quickly, uh, sold it to somebody else, who sold it to somebody else, who sold it to somebody else. So we, I was there for six or seven years, and then it ran for another five or six years after I left. What do you, what do you, how do you assess its legacy um, in, the, in the wake of Gawker? Lots of people were tracing the lineage between Punch and then you guys yeah. and Gawker. And Liz Spires, who uh, the first editor of Gawker, when I met her, she was walking around with a bunch of old spy magazines yeah. in a bag, which yeah. is what she did. Yeah. Are you happy that you spawned Gawker? I, I'm, you know, I mean, what uh, happy. Proud. I, there, there are many spawn. Our DNA, the spy's DNA went to Gawker. Spy's DNA, you know, in some way went to, is in John Oliver. I mean, spy's DNA is in, around in various places. You're right. Elizabeth Spires, you know, literally studied Spy magazine. So, and she was the first editor of Gawker. So there's some direct ancestry there. You know, it's all fine. I mean, I, I you know, I wouldn't do Gawker, but I, I'm, you know, I, you can't pick your descendants. Spy had a, a very uh, sharp, acerbic, you might say mean uh, edge to it at various times. I really appreciated that. Uh-huh. Gawker certainly did. Um, it seems like we're in a cycle now where we don't want that from our humor or our satire. Does that go in ways or do you think those well, are just individual I, publications? I, I think those are, that's a good question. I think, you know. Gawker went as far down that road as, you know, we've seen in America. I think more than mean the axis of is it too mean or not not mean enough or whatever, that's an axis. But I think the difference really, I mean, one thing that Gawker is a case study of, I think, is the internet more than meanness qua meanness, which is to say, if you've got to post 10 or 20 or however many stories a day, you're going to have to kind of, you know, it's not just going to be the Donald Trumps of the world or the, you know, uh, whomever's of the world. The, your the your targets Jacksons. can't all be big targets. Correct. Eventually you start poking little people. Correct. You start punching down and, and uh, uh, yes. And I don't know. I mean, other people have different. I remember when we started Spot, people said to me, what, every month? No, that that's just, that's too much of this kind of satirical bile, which sounds ridiculous now. But I say, as a person of a certain era or of a certain taste or tolerance for that, like 10 times a day, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't need that. Give me one. I mean, yeah, give me it every, give me once a week, give me once a day, maybe, you know, but, but so that's, when you're feeding that beast, uh, maybe you become beastly. You co-founded Spy with Graydon Carter. Graydon Carter eventually ends up running Vanity Fair, the most establishment magazine there is. He is the establishment. Many people have pointed this out. I'm sure people are you're sick of hearing about this. But did you consciously think, all right, well, we've been this acerbic, mean, biting publication. I can't do that personally anymore. I've got to take a different tack. Do you think Graydon thought about that? I, I don't – it's a good question. I, I don't know that – I mean, you know, 
very few careers that I know about are are that plotted. Plotted. Yeah, exactly. You stumble around, see what's available, and you do it, and or not, and you make those choices. I do think, or like you were consulting for Barry Diller at one point, and that's the I kind was. of guy you would. I'm I assuming was. you ripped apart at in spot. Indeed. So, and I became friendly with Harvey Weinstein, for instance. Somebody else we attacked mercilessly in spy. So, you know, if, if they can forgive, um, well, why not? But I do think both of us felt that, uh, that you know what we were doing was a youngish man's game, and and more than being a youngish man's game. Just a thing that it was kind of emotionally, spiritually exhausting to do. So you can only do that thing for that one. I can, you know. And I think, again, you mentioned Gawker. I mean, Nick Denton, I think, had his fill of it. I mean, from talking to him and seeing what he said in public, like, you know, there's a, you know, you, you, you only want to do, do those kinds of things so long, uh, or at least yeah. I did. He seemed to be fine with it just up until the end. Well, decided, now I've had enough. That maybe. Maybe so. I'll ask him about it next time I see him. Um, you've done a bunch of cool things. You, you edited New York Magazine for a period. Mm-hmm. And then at one point, you and Michael Hirshhorn started Inside.com. We, we did. Which we're still in the archives here. This was, again, I think a, a really influential publication. It nice didn't last very long. I really wanted to work there. Yeah. For, well, for let's years. go back in time and I'll hire you. Yeah. No, no. I, I tried interviewing with you and you were, really? you were, you were correctly unimpressed with me. So really? Yeah, I, need, I, need I mean, we actually, time. I actually interviewed you? I, I got all the way up to, wow. and then for a while I was, it's, let's not talk about Peter Kafka's failed attempts to work at Inside. Oh, okay. But it, it worked out well. Good. But this was a very cool trade slash general interest publication about media. You hired Everyone who was good, basically, in media, including the late David Carr, and everyone who worked there went on to do amazing things. Inside.com itself didn't succeed, though. Why not? Well, I guess the reason it didn't. I mean, it was it was funny. We started it in 1999-2000, which we thought, like, oh, my God, this is a good idea. It's, it's, it's covering the entertainment, information, media worlds online as an online, native online Where publication. But we felt like we were barely getting in on the end of the dot-com boom. Like, we got to start this. We're starting a band late. And, of course, the irony is that it was way too early for itself. As right. A, I remember going to L.A. and like you'd, variety was still a thing. And, yeah. other, and And people who were getting emails who were studio executives were having them read to them. Yes, right. Exactly. So that – precisely. And when, and when we very, you know, full of hubris would say, well, you know – Variety is going to be out of business in no time because of us uh, kind of uh, statements. It was early, even though we felt it was late. And maybe even more to the point, there was no, I mean, there was no online advertising. So we had to like do this crazy, okay, we're going to charge people. We're going to, these tremendous sums of money for subscriptions, just like Variety and Hollywood Reporter and Publishers Weekly do. Well, you know, and we sold some, but not enough quickly enough to make it a business, there was no advertising, in addition to being no broad, no broadband and so right. forth. But really, no advertising in, in 2000 to well, sustain... Well, to 2016, there's still a question about whether there's enough advertising right. to sustain that's online true. publications. That's true. But there was, you know, close to zero back then. So that that's the biggest reason. And, of course, it was we, we raised the money and started it at this nutty time when uh, people who should have known better... Gave us way too much money to start this thing. Does the, are you the owner of the famous quote about it's, yeah. it's easier than, than getting laid in the 60s? Yeah, yeah. No, and, and again, I was a child in the 60s, so I, I, it was, it <laughs> yes, was, as, I, as I certainly imagine. didn't get laid in 1969, which was the <laughs> quote that I gave to Howard Kurtz one morning. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, so it, it, it was true. It was nutty, that bubbly 
moment. Uh, so I, again, I'm not blaming anybody except you know we 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 spent too much money and and the chances for revenue were absurdly small. Having gone through that process in the late '90s, done doing a media startup, and now with benefit of hindsight and watching yeah. what's going, do you ever get the itch saying, "Oh man, I could I can do this now. I have a plan. Let's do it." No, I I don't really. I mean, I I I think I can provide. A, useful advice, as you mentioned, you know, consulting for Barry Diller for a while. I, I think I, you know, now that I'm old and wizened and wise, I have things, I, I, I know things, but the, I have not had the moment of like, by God, now is the time I want to start this all-in entrepreneurial thing. No, starting Spy, uh, running New York Magazine, and, and starting Inside.com. Uh, Scratch those itches. Scratch those itches, and again, you know, and then started a radio show, and that you know has its own uh, longer-lasting entrepreneurial satisfactions in its way. I want to ask what entrepreneurial, not in the sense of making much money, but but nevertheless, making a media you're, thing. You're working in public radio. Yes, exactly. Actually, I bet you get paid well. But let me before we get ask you about radio. Um, what do you make of again? Because you've watched it a bunch of times. We, it's we seem to have been the last few years. We've seen a cycle of money going back into media. People didn't want to touch it, then they did. And people, including Vox Media, where I work, yeah. raised big sums of money. Having watched this long enough, do you can you sort of see? Oh, I know what's coming around the corner. This a thing. little bit, a little bit. I mean, I'm a big fan of Vox. I'm a big fan of Five Thirty Eight. More power to them all, and they're doing great work. Yep. As you know, you were kind enough to say Inside.com did too, and and you know there have been enough failures of a certain kind that, God willing, that they can avoid the failures that have already happened and may 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 fail in a new way or may succeed. I mean, you know, uh, it is interesting though. Yet when you see like you know whether it's BuzzFeed or Vox or Five Thirty Eight or you know all, all of them, uh, well not all of them, which but most of which, many of which are are fantastic in in their own way. You know, you don't want to be like, hey, I've been there, done that. You're going to be out of business in three years because I don't know that. But but I also look, you know, at the the world I'm in of podcasting and, and you're in. It's, it is certainly interesting to see having been through various bubbles. You know, I don't know that we're in a podcast bubble. Maybe we're it's just a, a pretty bit, tiny bubble. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, look around. Yes. You mean this fabulous. Uh, smells like beer in here. Place. Yeah. yeah. No, but there are now, you know, all I know is it's a lot harder to keep producers working on my radio show than it was four years ago because... Because a handful of startups have gone and basically hired Gimlet everyone and that Panoply works. Yeah. and all those, yeah. Yeah, we'd like to hire some of those guys, too. There you go. We heard they basically just came through WNYC and just took everything that wasn't bolted to the wall and, yeah. and now work at That's Gimlet. what you heard? Yeah. yeah, that's what I heard. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm glad these, these you know, startups existed because for the longest time I thought, like, wow, really, Slate is like the only completely legit, enduring, you know, digital native journalistic startup. And now there are more, and that's good. Let's talk about your show. Okay. Um, long-running show. How, how long? Uh, we started broadcasting right after the 2000 election, so 16, almost 16 years. So I'm a big fan. I think I probably was listening to it in podcast form without knowing it was a podcast. It was just something that I was able to download. Yeah. Well, I didn't. Even, the first time anybody said, I like your podcast, was 2009. And I, and I did a spit take, practically. Like, what? No, it's a radio show. Right. So, so <laughs> it's this multi-layered radio show. Yeah. You have multiple themes. You do narrative stories. Yeah. You, do, you do interviews. You, do interviews. Yeah. you go out and talk to people in the real world. Do you see a distinction between a radio show and a podcast? It seems like it's, they're the exact, they're just on-demand audio at this point. Uh, it is on-demand audio. However, I do think actually there there is there are some distinctions, which is to say, you know, we're just 
talking. Yes. I mean, the, the conversationalism and informality, and I can say dirty words, and all of that are qualities and virtues that podcasting has introduced right. to the audio world that I think public radio, when they're wise, are, are adopting. In the same way that, you know, when public radio started and invented its thing starting 40 years ago, it was different than commercial radio. So, yeah, it's all radio. But in a certain way, podcasts are to public radio as public radio was to commercial radio then. So it's all part of the great circle. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's a conversation going back and forth because, yeah. sure, it's informal and we're just two dudes sitting here talking and we, yeah. can, we can swear. One of us in a T-shirt. One of us should swear. I'm wearing a Guinness shirt. It's my yeah. favorite podcasting shirt. But, you know, there's a big movement within podcasting. Yeah. I think it's sort of evolved past two guys talking right. in a room and let's do some actual reporting and let's figure out how to create sound. Let's go to WNYC and hire everyone there. Totally. So well, we and, and if we're that. WNYC, let's, let's start a new division that is does nothing but invent podcasts. I was very pleased, again, as an old FUD, that the great breakthrough podcast was Serial. You know, not just two people talking in a room, right. but an in- insane amount of, you know, first-rate world-class journalism done by people who had done radio journalism for a long time. So I was really pleased. I'm, I'm pleased for all the two guys sitting around talking. Mark Maron, bless you. Peter Kafka, bless you. All of it. Oh, I, got, I got in the same Mark Maron sense. But, but, uh, but I'm really pleased that that set the standard of, of success. It's a hard standard to, to meet, right? It's serial didn't meet it the next time out. I mean, it was a very good show, but it didn't yeah. have the same kind of uh, attention, didn't have yeah. the same kind of drama, yeah. frankly. Yeah. Uh, it's hard, it's a, it no, it's a tough. But again, it, it in this age of where you know amateurs can do anything as well as professionals, I, w- I was happy to see the professional the professionals vindicated a little bit. I asked if you wanted to do a startup. You said, no, I'm good. Is there is there some itch that you want to scratch that you haven't done yet? Is there some project you want to take uh, on? Yeah. I mean, over the years, I have, you know, uh, like everybody I know, I've written television pilots and, you know. A couple novels? Uh, well, no- novels. I'm going to keep doing the radio show as long as the world seems to want it. But the thing that I haven't done that I would like to do is is a scripted television show. And I'm working on one now that, you know, you know, could see the light of day. What what's you want to share? Uh, not really. I mean, it's a drama, it's American history, period, hour long, and uh would be on TV and it would be fantastic. And and everything I know about TV, which is not that much, is boy, that's a collaborative medium. Yeah. And even even if you have yeah. full authority totally. of what you're doing, there's still a gazillion people working on it, even the best of circumstances. Yeah. That appeals to you. It does. Uh, the right I mean, you know, magazines, spy was a very collaborative medium. Radio is a very collaborative medium. The only thing I do that isn't collaborative is writing novels. Even that's you know, somewhat collaborative because you got an editor and all that. But writing books is pretty is It's is, you in a room, basically. It is you in a room. Uh, it is your your head and a typewriter. So, no, it is very collaborative. But I'm really excited about this idea. I'm really excited about my collaborators. Uh, I'm really excited about w- what it would mean now in the world. So, uh, yeah, that I'm uh, very excited about. But then, you know, call me in six months and uh, yeah. I can tell you how it came out. I will. I want to see the theoretical Kurt Anderson yeah. TV show. Okay. Um, I'll let you go so you can work on it. Thanks, Kurt. My pleasure, Peter. I appreciate your time. Thanks to you guys for listening. If you like this, I bet you did. Kurt's great. Uh, you can go find more of these things. They're on Recode Media at iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And since you're smart and you listen to podcasts, you can figure that part out. Um, I'm supposed to tell you about the other podcasts that Recode makes, but that takes a long time. Um, so we're going to be quick. So I can also thank FreshBooks and Videoblocks, our awesome sponsors, Digital Media, who distributes this show. Um, I'm also going to promote the other podcast we released this week with Josh Turingell. 
He produces uh, Vice News, the new HBO show. He sounds great and smart, just like Kurt. Um, and that's also available. So go listen to that. I'm done talking. I will see you next week with two shows. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you.